It's good to see all of you this morning. Let me invite you to turn with me once again in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 7. We'll begin reading in just a moment in verse 25, our passage before us, however, are verses 30 to 36. And as we're coming now to this part of the seventh chapter, if I ask you to think back to the first chapter, you may need to be thinking quite a long time ago. It's been a while since we've been back in John chapter 1, and since we have seen John the Baptist on the scene. You remember what that was like when we were hearing of his ministry and of the receipt of his ministry by the Jews. Uh, It has been a long time since that day when we saw the Sanhedrin send a delegation to him to ask him questions. Do you remember that? They had a series of questions to ask him to find out what he was all about. And we didn't hear them giving public resistance to him in his ministry. He was extremely popular among the Jews. And yet the culmination of his ministry was to point directly and explicitly to Jesus as the Lamb of God. I mean, to say of him that Jesus so far surpassed himself in terms of his worth and his glory, that he, John the Baptist, wasn't even worthy to do the lowliest of service to him. Do you remember that testimony that John the Baptist gave? Well, the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews, did not give John the Baptist trouble, but that pointing of his has turned out to be quite a problem for them because Jesus has not turned out to be willing to play the game as they would like. He has told one of their own number, Nicodemus, when he came to visit him in chapter 3, that he required a rebirth if he was to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus has gone about with great boldness, teaching with great authority, even in the temple in Jerusalem, despite never having received their stamp of approval to do so. And in their minds, to make matters much worse, are the things Jesus has been saying. He has been saying provocative things that they hear and say, that's dangerously close to a claim of equality with God himself. So they've been opposing him now for some time. They've opposed him since chapter 5, verse 16. And in fact, since John 5, 18, we've been hearing of them beginning to plot toward his death. And it's worth clarifying that in our minds. It's not as if when the Sanhedrin of the Jews were plotting Jesus' death, that they were plotting uh, the hiring of an assassin or figuring out how and when to poison his food. That's not the way they've been plotting his death, is it? When they plot toward his death, what they're doing is they're trying to figure out how they will be able to convict him of blasphemy and have him put to death. In other words, much of their plot involves waiting and watching and listening. This is what they have been doing. Just think of how often in the accounts in the Gospels, the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders are trying to trap him in his words or asking him questions that they hope will get him to say something publicly that will bring conviction. And last week we heard him again speak publicly, this time in the Jerusalem temple, about the unity that exists between himself and the Heavenly Father. And they decide this week to move against him. So this morning we consider verses 30 to 36 in chapter 7. And our focus 
is going to be on that particular part of their, op- their opposition to him, the effort to have him arrested. It's voiced here for the first time. The first thing we'll do in just a moment is see the scene set up for this in verses 30 to 32. And what we'll do for the rest of our time is simply watch as they encounter problems. And we'll consider what it is uh, that's being shown to us as we see them run into these problems in their efforts to arrest the Lord Jesus Christ. To begin, let's read. I'll read from verse 25 down to verse 36. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from? But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. And now the beginning of our text this morning. So they were seeking to arrest him. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you <clears throat> you will seek me and you will not find me where I am you cannot come The Jews said to one another where does this man intend to go that we will not find him Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks What does he mean by saying you will seek me and you will not find me and where I am you cannot come This is the word of the Lord Please be seated. It's put very simply in verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him. Simple enough, and yet right away we get the impression that it is uh, not as simple a thing as we might expect it to be today if the authorities were simply seeking to arrest someone. In fact, the whole situation that is described here is a little bit confusing. For example, is there a difference between verse 30 and verse 32? They were seeking to arrest him. He's been speaking to the crowd leading up to verse 30. Is it some in the crowd that are doing this? And if that's the case, is verse 30 describing something maybe more informal or popular compared to verse 32? which seems to be a more, we would, many have called it a formal arrest warrant being issued. Many think that is what we're meant to see here, that verse 30 describes the voicing by some in the crowd of a desire to do something like a citizen's arrest, to come grab hold of this man and take him to the authorities. The word arrest also simply means to seize or to take into custody. 
So they may have been wanting to lay hold of him in order to bring him uh, to those that he might answer to. But let's look at 30 and 31 together, because what we need to see is that we're being given two different reactions to these things that Jesus is saying in the temple. These are conflicting responses of those who are listening to Jesus. Some, as we see there in verse 30, are clearly angry. But they're not, that's not the only response that Jesus receives at this moment. There are others who believe in him. They believe the words that he is teaching. And we're given the reason for their belief here in what is said. They did this because of what it is they had seen. And I would have us take a moment and think about the belief that we are uh, shown in verse 31. Apparently, they have been seeing quite a bit more than what John is choosing to tell us, haven't they? They have been having a number of signs displayed to them so that they would, they would ask this question. They would justify their belief in this man with the question, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? What, what are the signs that we would be waiting for to confirm God's sending of the Christ? Is it possible that another would come and do more than what we have seen this man do? And John, in writing this gospel, names this as a kind of belief. Now, we've said much already in this study of John's gospel about the kind of belief that we often see on display in the gospel of John. Especially when we were in chapter 2, what we saw is that uh, we saw displayed there a kind of belief, you remember we said this, that is only able to be extended as far as the eye can see. And we saw that that is described as a kind of belief, but it's not described as a saving belief. There's something deficient about that belief. Well, can I suggest to you that we're we're seeing perhaps another facet of the belief concept, the belief motif in John's gospel here. Let's chase this for just a moment. Uh, The group in verse 31 expresses belief they say, because of the signs that Jesus has done. We need to realize this is exactly what Jesus will tell the Jews to do in John 10, 38. He'll say, if I'm not doing the works of my father, then don't believe me. But if I am, then even though you don't believe me, even though you don't necessarily respond in faith to the words that I am saying, then believe the works that you may know that the father is in me and I am in the father. There is something that Jesus says there that is holding out the rightness of making proper judgment on the basis of the signs that Jesus is working. And to that end, one commentator named Leon Morris, he writes this regarding our text here, verse 31. He says, throughout this gospel, it is better to believe on the basis of miracles than not to believe at all. So there is no condemnation of this faith as inadequate. And I think that's fair of him to say here. We get no indication from John in verse 31 that we're supposed to immediately see this belief as something to be criticized. In fact, remember how John will word his purpose statement at the end of this gospel. In John 20, verse 30, he'll write this. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these, these signs, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So I think it's fair what Morris points out there, that here in verse 31, there is not 
condemnation of the faith that he's recording. However, here's what we have to keep in mind at the same time. That it's both the anger of verse 30 and the belief of verse 31 that are being described here in verse 32 as being muttered or whispered. You notice that? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. Now that does point to a deficiency that John is going to bring forward a great deal more even in the weeks to come. And I would quickly direct your attention to three places to see this. Follow me through these, uh, these quick references. Let's combine what he's saying here about this belief in verse 31 with what we hear in these three locations. The first is John 10, verses 41 and 42, which reads like this. Many came to him and they said, John, that's John the Baptist, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man, Jesus, was true, and many believed in him there. Again, we're hearing that more and more are coming to express a kind of conviction about the truthfulness of who Jesus claims to be and who John the Baptist claimed him to be. We see it again in chapter 12, chapter 12, verse 10. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. This is after he's died and been raised. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So you see here again is another sign that Jesus works. We'll find when we get there the height of his signs prior to his resurrection in John's gospel. And John, the gospel writer, tells us that on account of that sign, many are going away and believing in Jesus. There is a decision. There is a, a, a confession. But then notice what's added to that picture down in verse 42 of that chapter, John 12, 42. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Now, can you hear in that statement a clear condemnation, a clear criticism? He's deceased, he's criticizing the belief that is described there to exist among the authorities. And it's just spoken in reference of that particular group. But the critique is basically the same that we have in our chapter. You can come back to chapter 7. It's the same that we might find in verse 32 of our passage. That here is a belief that perhaps really has been convinced of truth, but simply is not yet willing to commit publicly to that conviction. There is fear of man that is running the show here. In the final analysis of the driving of these individuals and their will, what do they really love the most? What they, do they really care about the most? What is being put on display is a fear of man, the love of the approval of man, rather than the love of the approval of God. So there is, I think, a critique here of the belief that's being described in verse 31, given that it's being whispered about still. However, we, as we've seen, we could overstate that criticism. Uh, and that would make us miss, I think, John's main point here, which is simply to show us that there truly are growing divisions taking place now in Jerusalem because of Jesus. It is certainly true, many of these who believe now 
will change their mind before the end. They will walk away from the Lord Jesus. Just like the great crowd who believed in Jesus in earlier chapters after they watched him multiply the loaves and the fish and proceeded to walk away from him. We've seen it happen. And many of these will will do the same. However, there are some among this group whom the Holy Spirit is preparing, who are being given eyes to see, even, even with the fear of man still operative, and who will then be ready when the apostles in the book of Acts stand and preach. They're being prepared to be ready to be cut to the heart by those apostles and their sermons and to cry out then, what must I do to be saved? The Lord is doing more than one thing here as as Jesus becomes persuasive. But for us this morning, we simply need to recognize the genuine division that's growing among the people. And that division is what the Pharisees hear. Again, verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. We need to remember the distinction that we have talked about before in this study, that there are, uh, there are parties, religious parties, uh, Pharisees and Sadducees. But then there is the location of actual political and legal authority for the Jews, which is the Sanhedrin. So you see there in 32, chief priests and Pharisees. We have to remember that the, the Pharisees are the religious party that predominated in actually working with the people, living among the people, teaching them. The, the Sadducees, by contrast, were almost exclusively the priestly class, more removed from the people. So it makes sense in verse 32 that it's the Pharisees that hear these popular arguments and mutterings. However, the Pharisees have a minority presence on the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is made up of both Pharisees and Sadducees. So what happens here is simple. The Fer- some of the Pharisees hear about these public quiet whisperings and their representatives bring them to the ruling body. And they, along with the priests who belong to that body, agree jointly to issue an arrest warrant. This is what we see in verse 32. And they send out their officers, it says. They together sent officers to arrest him. That word officers also means servants. These are specifically the formal servants of the Sanhedrin, officers. Uh, They served in Jerusalem. And what's interesting for us this morning is just to make note that these are the very same people. This is the same group, the servants of the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, possibly even the very same individuals then that Judas is going to go to in about six months and get and lead to Jesus to arrest him. One of them, we know his name. We don't know if he was a part of this particular group. I doubt that all of the servants went to bring Jesus. But one of this group is named Malchus. He's going to get his ear chopped off by Peter about six months from now. And Jesus is going to have to put it back on again. It's it's so interesting to me to, to remember, to put the pieces of the story together. I love the benefit we have of walking through this while having been given the whole story already. We can see the pieces that are falling into place. And in this first issuing that we find here this morning of an arrest warrant, these leaders begin for the first time to experience some problems, two problems. 
that they're going to wrestle with for the rest of this book. And in fact, it's inevitable that they would wrestle with these two difficulties, given the identity of the man that they're trying to arrest. What are the difficulties that one will encounter when one tries to arrest the Son of God? One of them is very local and practical, and the other is undergirding the whole story. The first problem is that they're trying to arrest him amid a context where without the right popular support, they are in very real danger of instigating a full-blown riot. And in fact, we see that they have to take this into account constantly as the next six months play out before his arrest. It's a significant limitation to them fulfilling their own desires. We're told in numerous places that it's the fear of the crowds that keeps them from actually doing what they want to do. Mark 12, 12 tells us that. We read in Matthew 21, 46, although they wanted to arrest him, they feared the crowds because the people regarded him as a prophet. So it's worth getting a snapshot of how this desire to arrest Jesus takes place, how it plays out in John's gospel. It's issued here, and as we will find in the rest of this chapter, they do not arrest him. They do not bring him. In the next chapter, in John 8, 20, which is, may likely be the very next day, the Pharisees themselves will confront Jesus in the temple, and yet still they will not arrest him, in spite of having issued this decree. In John eleven fifty seven, after he has withdrawn, they're going to issue orders that anyone who knows where he is is required to report his location so that they can go and arrest him. And yet 11 verses later, he's going to ride into the city on a donkey in full display of everyone. And you'll enjoy this, John 12, 19. At that moment, it says the Pharisees, the Pharisees said to one another, you see that we are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. And we're seeing their utter frustration as they desire to arrest him, but they simply can't. And of course, when they finally are able to arrest him, what do they have to do? Well, they have to go under cover of darkness. And Jesus then, not in John's gospel, but elsewhere, he will point out the hypocrisy of it. I've been teaching every day this week in the temple publicly, and now you come to me under cover of night. He'll just, it's very clear uh, the reason that they're having to do things in the way that they're doing them. So this is the first problem, just at a very surface level. They want to arrest him, but they can't because they know of the public response that will happen. And it's helpful for us to remember correctly the scene to explain that. There really is a growing division among the people that we saw in verses 30 and 31. Many are believing in him. Many will rise up and fight during this time in his ministry if he is arrested. Now, the second problem, though, and this is where we'll spend the most of our time this morning, it's pointed at more than once in our text. And it's absolutely fundamental to the entire situation, isn't it? The second problem that the Sanhedrin runs into is that in trying to arrest Jesus now, they are trying to assert their timing upon a God who already has a plan for his son. He already has a plan for his son that includes his arrest and his crucifixion. He has a schedule for his plan, and they're a bit early 
for his schedule. And so in trying to arrest him today, they find themselves working against the timetable of the God who is sovereign over all creation. Verse 30 is simple, but it is incredibly profound, isn't it? They were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Over and over again in John's gospel, his hour refers to his death. His death, his burial, his resurrection collectively, but in a unique way directly referring to his death most often. It is what the Sanhedrin wants. We've seen it for several chapters now. That's why they want to arrest him. They want to kill him. It's why they seek his arrest. And remember, they will get it. They're going to get what they want because that is the end that God has decreed for his son. The father has sent his son into this world as a sacrificial lamb to lay down his life in order to take away the sins of the world. This is how we read it earlier in John's gospel. It's in fact exactly as their own high priest will say in John 11.50 when, when the high priest speaks far better than he understood And he'll say there, it is better for you that one man should die for the people than that the whole nation should perish. Well, yes, that's true. In other words, they are going to arrest him. But they're not going to arrest him one second sooner than the father lets them arrest him. And the father not only has a timetable, he has a specific reason for his timetable. He has something great and tremendous that he has been planning for a long, long time. He is excited to put himself on display in a particular way. And he's not going to let anything disturb that particular display that he has been planning. If you're familiar with the epic... Uh, trilogy, The Lord of the Rings. You may remember how the first book of that trilogy opens with, the, with a great celebration, a birthday party. It's Bilbo's 111st birthday, celebrating 111. He has been planning it for a long time, making preparations. And because of his excitement in particular, that event is supposed to culminate in one climactic event And it's very important to him that it goes off just so. It's how we plan things that we're tremendously excited about. I bring that up as an example because as we see in the whole of Scripture, the father has been planning this display for his son for a long time. In fact, throughout the history of his people, he has been putting details in place, making subtle announcements setting up the decorations just so that would fit the event perfectly of the sending of his son. And these things signify different aspects of his greatness that he wants to put on display in the sending of his son. And one thing's for sure, there's no way he's going to let his son die during the Feast of Tabernacles. That is not when this is happening. That celebration God had given to his people as well as a part of the decorations of his his event of sending his son. The Feast of Tabernacles, which they're celebrating in this passage, is all about water and light. We'll see it in the next couple of weeks. Strategic uses of water and candles in 
remembrance of things God has done, in worship of who God is. And that feast, as I said, is part of the Father's intended decoration, to be sure. It will point to his Son as the bringer of the water of life and as the light of the world. But that's not the celebration that is meant to glory in his death. No, the Father has planned another celebration to showcase that revelation of who he is, to showcase his self-sacrificial, atoning love that saves sinners by laying down its own life. What's the name of that celebration that God gave to his people? Well, that's the Passover. That's the Feast of Passover. That's the celebration. That's still six months away. Sanhedrin. You're seeking to arrest the son of glory so that you might put him to death, but you're ahead of schedule. He's not scheduled to die until the Passover. So no, sirs, you won't be laying a hand on Jesus today. And as we go on to see, it's not only the father who will not allow this to happen, except in full knowledge and only at the right time, In fact, Jesus Christ himself knows what he is going to do. He knows what is going on. And he seems to be responding to their desire to arrest him. In verse 33, look at what he says there. Do you notice how John positions his statement right after the news that they have sent officers to arrest him? Jesus shouldn't know that. But his response indicates that he does know that. Verse 33, Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You see that? He knows that his time is drawing short. He knows that he has roughly six months left until his death. And when we get there, we'll find there's a great deal about his death and what he will endure that will upset him greatly. But as he speaks about the clock ticking down, as he speaks about the inevitability of his departure... Does he sound worried to you here? He doesn't sound worried to me at all. His death will simply be the means by which he finishes his work that he came to do and returns to the Father. No, he's not worried in that sense. And in fact, notice here that what he emphasizes is that his departure ought to be very worrisome to them. Verse 34 You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. This is what he emphasizes to them here. And of course, they don't understand at all what he is saying. It's just the latest of a slew of misunderstandings that we've been seeing in this gospel. Verse 35, they react this way. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. What does he mean? He'll repeat this same thing. In fact, he'll remind his disciples later of this event in John 13. And he'll clarify what he means. Look at John 13, 33, just quickly. He's speaking with his disciples here. Jesus says, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Skip down to verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? 
Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Now, as you're coming back to John 7, pause for a moment in John 8. Compare what he just said to his disciples to what he will say to the Pharisees in John 8, 21. So he said to them again, he's speaking now to the Pharisees, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Compare that to those words to his disciples. And you see why Jesus' revelation in verse 34 of our text, you can go back to John 7, is, displays such a, what ought to be so worrisome. Because his point is, if he goes, and you cannot go with him, you cannot follow after him, you will die in your sin. But we need to notice the specifics of verse 34 here, because he's not even simply saying to this, this to them in a sort of regrettable uh, way, a description of the unintended consequence of his departure. That's not how he's describing this, because he says, you will seek me and you will not find me. I mean, this is a deeply serious warning. You think you want to get rid of me, but when you are rid of me, what goes with me is the offer of life that I have brought. And in that day, you who seek life will find that you've lost the only chance you ever had at finding life because you won't be able to find me. And I would encourage us this morning to consider an implication of that before we go any further. There is a day that he is warning us all about. And it's different than today. It's different than this moment. And I can say that for this reason. This is a day, today, when your maker has continued to present you with his son. He's continued to offer you forgiveness if you will but come to his son and trust him for life. When Jesus speaks here of the reality of a day in these Jews' future in which their opportunity for life goes away forever, He's describing a warning that applies equally to every man, woman, and child alive today who have not yet come to the Lord Jesus Christ for life. He's been warning his people of this forever. He spoke through the prophet Isaiah and said, Seek the Lord while he may be found. What does that mean? He warned through the prophet Amos of times that would come where he would send a famine on the land, a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. And it's a terrifying description in Amos 8, 12. They shall wander from sea to sea, from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. And as you sit under his holy word preached today, what it means is that he's not given you over to that famine today. But there is no promise in scripture that he will not do so tomorrow. And so again and again, he calls to us and he says, today is the day of salvation. 
Seek the Lord while he may be found. Do not presume upon his mercy and his grace, grace and his patience. In terms of verse 34, the reality of warning is quite clear, isn't it? Jesus says, my presence with you is a gift to you. And that gift will not remain offered indefinitely. Now, if we understand that, we're, we're positioned rightly to appreciate the extreme irony of their response to him here in verses 35 and 36. Notice what we hear in their speculations. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? Now some point out and suggest in this questioning that they have that what they're winding up doing is accidentally describing, almost prophetically, like the high priest will do about Jesus' atoning death, uh, accidentally describing what in fact Jesus' disciples are going to proceed to do. They will branch out from Jerusalem. They will go to centers of Jewish population first, and from there the Greeks, and they will engage and evangelize the whole world with the gospel. That is, in fact, what's going to happen. But others rightly point out, and this is where I would have us fix our attention this morning, they point out the importance of the opening question in verse 35. Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? They phrase this with the word we used and placed emphatically. It seems like what they're asking is, where does he think he'd be able to go that we won't be able to go get him? To the extent that that's what they mean, it is a question dripping with irony, except that it's not funny at all because it's so tragic. They think that he is conveying a fear of them, a desire to flee and hide from them. When in fact, his very point is, it is you who should be very, very afraid. My presence, my being here is God loving the world. That is what it looks like. When I go, if you are not able to come with me, what is going with me is God's very offer of love. And if you cannot come after me, you are hopeless before his inevitable coming judgment. Or as I'll say in the next chapter, you will die in your sin. And it just strikes me what a picture this, this passage is of sinful man's complete and horrifying blindness. Jesus, scorned by the ones he came to save. Sinful man is confronted with the Lord Jesus Christ, perhaps thinks himself to be doing a favor to nod courteously at him, to speak respectfully of him, but all the while keeping him at arm's length. And our Lord speaks to us in places like these. Do you not understand? Your own conscience bears witness to you that you alone will die in your sins. Keep me away, and you keep life away. You keep forgiveness away. You keep peace with God away. There are many questions, right questions, that a text like this produces in our thinking. 
by God's grace, if he's attending his word from, by his spirit. This may bring us to a number of places in our mind. I would suggest two of these for us this morning. One question that this may arise in our mind is the question of, of ourselves and our response to the Lord. What are we doing with Jesus? What are you doing with Jesus? He has promised to return one day in just as perfect a timing as was his first coming, as was his death. He's promised when he comes to bring rescue to his people and to bring reward with him. Hebrews 11.6 says God is the rewarder of those who seek him. He's promised in Matthew 10.32, Whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. He's given us enough to know that the answer to that question and listen, not, not the answer of our lips alone, the answer of our lives. The answer to the question, what are you doing with Jesus? Is today and always will be the most important question of your life. And it's one that a text like this forces back into our awareness to ponder, to meditate over, to pray to God concerning. There's another question that it brings as well, I would think. And that is looking at verse 30, maybe in particular. What, what does the reality that we find in this text, what does it mean about my life? He says in verse 30, No one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Is that describing a reality that is true only of Jesus? Or is that describing something about the nature of God's loving, sovereign control? over all that would take place. There's a pervasive reality that we find here of God's sovereignty, which means that there is a proper reasoning from Christ's death. We could just think of death, from Christ's death to our own death. John Calvin described it well when he said this, speaking in reference to this very verse that we're looking at this morning. He says, from this, a general doctrine must be gathered for though we live unto the day, the hour of every man's death has nevertheless been fixed by God. We are safe from all dangers until God wishes to call us away. Do you see the conclusion he draws from the reality that we have here? If this is the way things are, then in God's plan, my, it, it must be true. I suppose it's true what the scriptures have told us, that God has indeed numbered our days. We are safe from all dangers until God wishes to call us away. That day has been fixed. What does that do to your mind as you think about that reality? Because as the Lord brings us to this passage this morning, he is allowing us again to ponder that truth about him. And oh, how in doing that, our Lord is bolstering in us a calm spirit a peace in us with this reminder. Let's put it this way this morning. Friends, you who belong to Christ Jesus, this means you do not need to fear death. It means that the number of days and hours that we will live in this life has already been set by one who loves you, by one who loves your family members, 
by one who loves those whom you will leave behind when you pass. The day and the hour has been set. And when that day does come, we have his promise that we will never be told <coughs> we will never be told by our Lord what we heard today. We will never be told where I am, you cannot come. No, no, we are comforted along with every other follower of Christ by the words that he will speak in John 14, 3, words that we read at the beginning this morning. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. This is the comfort, this is the focus, this is the assurance that our Lord gives us through his word this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, we, as this local body this morning, as those that you have brought together by your kindness to love you, to love each other, to worship you together as a family, we pause now and we pray to you and we thank you. We thank you for your, your persistent, your dependable use of your own word to encourage, to comfort, to sharpen our focus in this life, to protect us from losing sight of an eternal mindset. We confess this morning, Father, it is so easy to lose sight of that. It is so easy to let the uh, distractions of this life, the uh, right and proper places of obligation and responsibility that you've given to us in this life, it's so easy to let those things take up on our entire field of vision and to lose sight of you, to lose sight of how short our lifespan is and how great your purposes are and how unflinching and, and irreversible they are. Thank you this morning for the chance you've given us by your word and its ministry to us. To take a breath again as your people and to rest in your sovereign purposes. Lord, we pray for those among us who do not know you, who do not know your son, that they would feel and sense the rightness of the very opposite of that. That they would sense how wrong it is of them to wake up, live, go to sleep, and not be terribly concerned because you have not promised tomorrow and you have finished the work of sending one who would ransom, who would rescue. And the call to them now is to stop their life of self-centered living and to repent and to turn to you, the only living God, through the only means you have given, which is the death of your son. Father, we pray for those who are here among us who do not know you, that you would save. Lord, thank you for the opportunity again this morning you've given us to worship you, to bow before your son in his word. We pray all this in his name. Amen.